All right, men. You already know what's coming. <clears throat> For those of you who are new with us, we are in Ephesians chapter 5, and um, we're at verse 25, which is the command, the exhortation given to husbands. But as we did last week, I, I'd like to I'd like to go back to the beginning because the foundation for the role of a husband was laid at the beginning in the book of Genesis. So would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and then we'll skip and jump right over to 3. As we saw last week, when we looked at the role of wives, we saw that their role was established in the very beginning. Man was created first in the order, and the man was given a duty, a job, a responsibility, and the woman was created from the man. And actually in 1 Corinthians, later in the New Testament, Paul describes what that means. It means that the man is placed as head of the family. He is in the position of leader. He is given some sort of authority in the structure of the family. That's God's design, his order. And the woman was created as his fit helper. And the two were made for each other. One human race, two, just two distinct genders, made to come together in this amazing marriage union, this covenant called Marriage, And we see that in chapter 2, verse 24, which will be quoted in our passage today. But look at Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is an amazing union that happens. It is designed by God. It is beautiful. When God created this marriage union, it was created very good. God's design is good. Who are we to redline God's plans, to make edits, to make corrections? We have no right. God established in his word these two roles in this marriage union. And we dealt last week with the role of the wife, and this week we deal with the role of the husband. Well, as we know, you turn to Genesis chapter 3, and everything goes south. Things are all out of whack. Things get messed up to say in plain language. And it's not God's fault, it's whose fault? Let's read the account. In Genesis chapter three, let me summarize the beginning. The serpent convinces and deceives Eve, the woman, into eating the fruit, the forbidden fruit, the fruit that God commanded them not to eat. So the serpent, who is, we know, Satan, tempts Eve, to eat the forbidden fruit, and she gives in and eats the fruit first. And then what happens next? Eve gave some to her husband, and he ate of it also. So Eve eats first, Adam then eats, and their eyes are immediately opened. And they recognize, in verse 7, that both of them are naked. Look at verse 7 with me now. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Look at verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We see an immediate consequence of sin in this verse. One of the immediate consequences of sin is separation from God. They are hiding themselves from God. They've never done this before. They see the reality of their sin and they hide. You see a physical separation, a hiding that happens here. Who's responsible for this tragedy? Who does God hold responsible for what happened in the garden? Let's continue reading. Verse 9. The Lord's walking through the garden now. In verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? What's interesting about this question is that the you is singular. God doesn't walk through the garden and say, hey, where did you guys go? Where did you both go? Hey, both of you come out. Who does God call? The man. Adam, where are you? Step up to the plate, Adam. Take responsibility for what happened. Where are you? He calls the man. That should tell us something about the man's responsibility in the marriage relationship. And then Adam says in verse 10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God replied, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then in verse 12, here is the man's response. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Who does Adam blame here for his sin? Good answer. It's not Eve. He blames God. He's not necessarily, he could be physically pointing to Eve and saying, the woman you gave me, but the way he words it, the woman you gave me, God. Blames God. Blame shifts. Defers responsibility. He does not fulfill his role. And he's held responsible, obviously, for the sin that has continued on to mankind. It's Adam's sin, right, that has cursed all of us. We see in Romans 5, it's because of Adam, our head, that we have all sinned. And we're all sons and daughters of Adam because we've all sinned, committed the same sin. So God says to the man, to the husband, where are you? He holds the man responsible for the tragedy that happened and the man does not fulfill his role. He doesn't take responsibility for it. He blame shifts. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you the problem with our society today. The problem with our society is not feminism. The problem with our society is not that a bunch of women are standing up and they're taking charge. The problem with our society today, listen, is that we, are, we have weak men. We have weak men. Men that don't stand up and take leadership. Men that don't take their responsibility for their family. Men who do not lead in love, but they abuse their power. They blame shift. 
They point to everybody and everything else in their life without taking responsibility for their actions. Where are you, men? If the Lord were to walk through your quote-unquote garden, he might ask the same question. Where are you when your finances are upside down? Where are you, men, when the marriage is on the rocks? Where are you when their house is not in order? Where are you when conflict is tearing your family apart? Are you quick to point to her and say, well, it's her fault, God? Or it's the circumstances' fault, God? It's not, it can't be my fault. No, no, no. Husbands, the Lord asks you, where are you? Stop making excuses. Stop pointing the finger at others. Take responsibility, be a man, and fulfill your role. This is a strong charge that we have to men this morning. And men need to wake up. It starts and ends with you. We need to step up and fulfill our role as a man of God. And what is our role? Well, it is given to us in Ephesians chapter 5. So you can turn over to Ephesians 5. We see where it all went wrong and we can make it right. We can fulfill our roles, or our role, men, and honor the Lord in our families. Last week, again, we saw that the primary command for wives is to submit to their own husband. We saw that in verse 22. And the wife submits, not because she is forced or coerced or not out of duty or obligation, but she submits as unto the Lord. This is, uh, this is the wife's worship. It's her submission to Christ. And this is something that wives are commanded to do voluntarily. Again, it doesn't say husbands bring your wives into submission. It says wives submit to your husbands. Come under his leadership voluntarily because the husband is the head of the wife. He's been placed in a position of authority, a place of leadership. He's responsible for the family. Now, what would you think would be the next command for the husbands? What might be the antonym for submission, the, the main command for the wife? You might think that Paul would turn to the husbands and say, husbands, lead your wives. Wouldn't you think that? Wouldn't you think that Paul would then go, okay, hey, fulfill your role and lead? It's interesting that Paul doesn't say that. In fact, it, it's interesting that there is not a command in all of Scripture for you husbands to lead your wife. You are established as a leader. That's an indicative of scripture. You are established as the head of the family, but your command husband is not to lead. What is your command? Look at Ephesians 5.25. It's the quality, the type of leadership that matters to God. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husband, love your wives. Wow. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man, here's the quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me pray before we move further. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would uh, be with me as I preach this passage. Lord, you know that as I've been staring at this thing all week, God, it is convicting. I have failed in many ways to love to the standard that you love, God. And um, Lord, we all desire as men, husbands, godly husbands, that we would love our wives in the way that you've called us. Help us to be godly husbands. Help us to fulfill our role to not shrink from responsibility, to not lord or domineer or rule tyrannically, but to love like Christ. Help us, Lord. Pray for the single men out there who desire to marry, that you would make them selfless. God, I pray for those married men, young in their marriage, that you would grow them. I pray for men old in their marriage. I pray that they would desire and seek growth as well. None of us have arrived, Lord. We all need your grace every day. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is interesting to me that the command is not to lead your wife. You know, lest you might respond to the command for wives to submit, and you might respond and go, yeah, that's right. Lest your ego is boosted a little bit, and you think, yeah, that's right. I need to lead my wife. And husband might then go down the route of being tyrannical, of being domineering, of ruling, not like Christ, but ruling like, you know, the world sees ruling. And, And Paul makes it very clear, no, 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 you need to love your wife. This is what godly leadership looks like. Here is the, the largest fruit or the domineering characteristic of, of leadership is love. God's leadership. It is love. And so point number one, love like Christ. Love like Christ. That's our job, men. That is our job. It says, husbands, love your wives. Same thing, Colossians 3.19 says, husband, love your wives. You know, notice it also does not say, husbands, make your wife happy. Maybe you've tossed this phrase around. Maybe you're guilty of it. I am. Happy wife, happy what? Life. What do most husbands mean by that? Means, well, if I can preoccupy her with things, then I can distract her from me, right? In my own selfish escapades. That's not what the passage tells us to do. It doesn't say keep your wife happy. It also doesn't say husbands live with your wives and just be content with that. Like as long as you stay with her, as long as you're faithful, a lot of men are content with that. You know, I come home every night. I put food on the table. I have a good job. I provide for my family. I'm still with her, aren't I? (laughs) And that is the extent of their love. They treat her, their wives, more like tax benefits than treasures. More like a roommate than a romantic partner. More of a nagging nuisance than a precious prize. No, husbands, that's not our command. 2 Corinthians 5 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, 
whether good or evil. The Lord no doubt will question you, husbands. Did you not lead your wife? Did you not live with your wife? Not did you make her happy? Not did you just put food on the table? The Lord will ask you, did you love your wife? Did you love your wife? And not like the world's love. Not the romantic stuff you see in the Hallmark movies. But a true, genuine love that only comes from God. This is a very, very high standard. Love like Christ. It's like asking you to play basketball like Michael Jordan or to hit a golf ball like Tiger Woods, whoever your favorite golfer is. I mean, it, it seems impossible because obviously the epitome, the ultimate example, epitome, I know some of you corrected me on using, saying epitome, tomato, tomato, the epitome of love is Christ, isn't it? It's the love of Christ. So he is our standard. He is our standard. It, it, we are to love like him, just as he loved us and gave himself up for us. So let's remind ourselves of what God's definition of love is. You remember in Ephesians 5, 2, we heard something very similar. If you look back in chapter 5, look at verse 2. Commanded all of us to walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Similarly, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we are to look at Christ's love for the church, and you know Christ's love for the church. How would you describe Christ's love for the church? I would say first that Christ's love for the church is unconditional. Amen? Christ loved us despite of us, despite our sinfulness, despite the fact that we were enemies of God, dead in our trespasses and sins, but in love, in love, he predestined us to adoptions as son of God. Not because of anything good in us, but just because simply he set his love upon us. It is unconditional. God's love is generous. We've seen throughout the book of Ephesians the, the generosity of God, the the treasure houses of heaven are filled with mercy, with grace, in abundance of love. We saw that phrase earlier in this book. God's love is generous. It, it outruns our sinfulness. God's love is selfless. We saw that. Jesus put our interests before his own. He stepped down from heaven, set aside his glorious crown, and became like a slave to serve us. Jesus put our interests before his own. God's love is selfless, and, and God's love is ultimately sacrificial. God gave himself up. He laid his own life down for us. That is the love that husbands, God is calling you to this morning. It's a remarkable standard. That's a high bar. But it is our command. Practically, to love like Christ is to die to yourself every day. To lay your own wants, your own needs, your own desires down and to put hers in front of yours. To place her, your wife, at the top of your earthly priority list. Outside of Christ, there's no one more important, there's no one more precious than your wife. 
And you don't just show her that in romantic moments or on the anniversary trip or every so often buying her flowers, but the proof of love, husbands, is dying to yourself every day. Just like Christ. Congratulations, welcome to Christian husbandry. (laughs) You are the head of your family. Now die, right? That's what Jesus is calling us to to be utterly selfless. I'm convinced it's simple, really. The principle is all over Scripture. That selfishness is at the core of bad husbandry. A bad husband is a selfish one. A a bad father is a selfish one. The problems in your life, men, the problems in your marriage, can be reduced in most cases to your own selfishness. And husbands, do you want something very practical to work on this week? Be more selfless with your time, with your energy, with your focus. If you feel like you gave all that you had at work, come home ready to give more. If you have any spare time in your week, spend it on her and not yourself. When you're with her, ask her questions, listen to her talk, carry her burdens, share sympathy for her problems, and don't even bring up yours. Put her first in everything and watch this principle change your marriage. Don't make everything about you, but put her up on a pedestal and serve her like Christ loved and served his church. Love her like Christ loved you. And husbands, with such a high standard in front of us, you can only love your wife like Christ if you know the love of Christ, if you've experienced the love of Christ. This is an impossible task for an unbeliever. If you don't know Christ's love, then you're not going to show Christ's love. John 15, 12, Jesus says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You can only love one another as Jesus has loved you if you've been loved by Christ, if you've experienced his love and are walking in his love. Husbands, look at the love of Christ. Do not take your eyes off of Jesus. And then live it out. We have a beautiful description of Christ's love in this passage. It's actually the picture, the image of a wedding ceremony in verses 26 through 27. This great analogy of Christ the groom purifying, presenting, perfecting his bride, his church. And I want you to see that the emphasis for Christ in his love is on his bride, on his church. So point number two, love like Christ for her sake, for her sake. This picture, again, is just one of, that is tender, one that is admirable. Christ loves his bride for three reasons we see here in the text. That he might sanctify her, her purification. That he might present her as glorious in splendor, her presentation. And that she might be holy and without blemish, her perfection. Again, we have a picture here of a first century wedding ceremony. 
There's the purification, there's the presentation, and then eventually the consummation. That's what we see here. And so I made them all P's here. Purification, presentation, and perfection. Look at what Christ does for his bride. Verse 26, the purification. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now this is a picture of the bridal bath. This would be, this is common in first century weddings, is that the bride would be bathed ceremonially before her wedding ceremony. And this symbolized the removal of any past defilements and her renewed purity before her husband. Now, typically, a bride washes herself, maybe has the help of, you know, a, a mother or a close female relative. In this case, who washes his bride? Christ. Christ washes his bride. Why? Because he had to. Because he had to. Jesus alone sanctifies the church. He sets her apart for himself from everyone else. Is it because we were special, good, and lovely? No, we were filthy. We were unlovely, dead in our trespasses and sins. And so he had to clean his church. He had to wash her. And he did so. Not because we had any good works to offer, not because we could wash ourselves, but he had to make us clean. Look at Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is only the blood of Christ that can cleanse us from sin. Amen? We know that. And so our purification came at a great cost, a great cost. He sacrificed himself so that we would be made clean, made white as snow. He went to a great extent to purify his church, to set us apart, which is what sanctify means. He, he chose us, he plucked us out and set us apart to be washed. This is the love of Christ that he would take and wash a very dirty and filthy bride, an unworthy bride. Number two, the presentation. You see in verse 27, the first part, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the culture of the first century, this is, you know, this is a part of their culture in a, a Jewish wedding or a, a Greek wedding, is that the bride would present herself adorned to her husband. And then what would the husband do? The husband would present his bride to his father. Just kind of a ceremonial thing, you know, for approval. Father, look at who I married, kind of a thing. And the, the father would obviously give his approval, and then the ceremony would commence. In this case, it's interesting. Christ washed her, he cleans her, and then he adorns her, and then he presents her and receives her. She is his, and he is hers. The church is Christ's prized possession, his greatest treasure. He's not ashamed of her, he adorns her. He places her on the hilltop for the world to see and marvel at her beauty. 
He presents her, the church, to himself in splendor. In other words, glorious. A glorious sight. Look at Jesus' prayer in John 17, 22. Praise, the glory that you've given me, he's talking to his Father, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Christ's love for his bride, he sacrifices for her, he cleans her, and he presents her to himself adorned for him and all the world to see the church's glory. And then finally, we have perfection. Perfection, look at verse, the end of verse 27, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the end game for the church. We have not yet arrived. This is our goal, is that we would one day be holy and blameless before Christ. He made us holy, he set us apart, but don't you and I agree that one day we will be perfect standing before him in glory? And we have not yet to see that day. And so there's this process of sanctification. We have positional sanctification, that is we're made holy, but we progressively are sanctified as we move toward glory. Ephesians 1.4 told us this, this is our end game. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is maybe a glimpse into our future, maybe a glimpse into the future marriage supper of the Lamb, when the church adorned is made ready and clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, and presented to Christ. And we long for that day. We long for that day. Jesus says that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus, the bridegroom's love, gets us there. So we think about Christ's love for the church. It's this incredible picture of him purifying the church, him presenting the church to himself, and then the future perfection of the church. Now, if you are a Jew familiar with the prophets, specifically Ezekiel, this imagery might sound familiar to you. To show Yahweh's love for Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Yahweh says this. Listen to the verbiage. In chapter 16, he says, The day you were born, speaking of Israel, you were not washed. You were rejected, despised by men. When you came of age for love, still no one wanted you. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I picked you up, covered your nakedness, made a covenant with you and called you mine. And, continue in verse 9, I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You grew exceedingly beautiful, advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations. 
because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What an incredible groom Yahweh was to Israel. Now we know that the rest of this chapter is pretty bleak. Israel disobeys. She plays, the, the passage says, the whore. She sells her beauty to the rest of the nations. But see here in this imagery, God's relentless love for Israel. That is the same God who relentlessly loves, purifies, presents, and makes his church perfect. This is incredible love. In love, he purifies her. In love, he presents her. In love, he perfects her. For her, for her, for her. The church is his possession, his precious treasure, and his prize. And Paul doesn't just bring up this illustration to point you back, but and then turns and tells you to love husbands in the same way. Love your wives despite her deficiencies, despite her deformities, despite her difficulties. Love your wife like Christ loved and was willing to wash and clean his church unconditionally. Your wife is your prize. She is your greatest possession. The men at work complain about their wives, don't they men? They complain, but you boast about yours like Christ boasts in his church. You put her on the highest pedestal. She is above all others. Your eyes are on her and her alone. She is your precious and greatest treasure outside of Christ. And listen, men, husbandry is a stewardship. The end goal for your wife is not that she would be happy. It's not she is a husband that is just faithful. The end goal for your wife is perfection, that she would stand perfect before God. The end game for both men and women is to be betrothed to Christ, holy and blameless. This means, husband, that ultimately your wife is his. Your wife is the Lord's. And your priority is her sanctification and her holiness. A loving husband will be a help, not a hindrance to that process. He will not provoke her to sin, but, but protect her heart from it. She's not his to have, his to possess, but the husband's to steward for the sake of Christ. So husbands, are you loving your wives for her sake, for her sanctification, for her honor, and for holy, her holiness? Love like Christ for her sake. Point number three, love like Christ for your own sake. This is an interesting, uh, these are interesting words that the Apostle Paul gives us in verse 28. It's a profound section. It tells us something of the nature of the marriage union, but also in the nature of another mysterious union we have with Christ. Love your wife like Christ for her, for her sake and for your own sake. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become 
one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Husbands, this is strange to say out loud, but it is true because it comes to us from the pages of Scripture. He who loves his wife loves himself. Interesting. You know, it's amazing how a very small injury on your body can affect your overall quality of life in great ways. Um, I, at 20 years old, I had a back injury, injured my back, and I had an eight millimeter herniation. Eight millimeter. That's very small. Eight millimeters is very small. But that small bulge, which herniated, resulted in a herniation, paralyzed me. I couldn't walk for days. I was sitting there on my back. I wasn't comfortable standing, comfortable sitting. I couldn't run like I used to. I walked with a limp. Just an eight millimeter bulge. You know, another point, I think this, this makes the point so well. How about an ingrown toenail? Any of you have ever had an ingrown toenail? Doesn't that destroy your overall quality of life? That little nail that grows out and not up? You start walking with a limp, and unless you take care of that, you get that ingrown toenail out, it affects everything. Listen, husbands, you are one with your wife. If your wife is malnourished, if she's in pain, spiritually and physically and or physically, if you are neglecting her, understand this, you're neglecting yourself, and that small pain affects your spiritual walk, your life, just as much as it affects hers. It's not that you come home and, you know, you both focus on your own walks with the Lord separately. Well, that's her problem. She's got to figure that out, and I'll work on my walk with the Lord. No, 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 you are one. You are united, and so if she's in pain, you're in pain, husband. If she's malnourished, not being fed on the word, then, husband, you could very well be malnourished. If she feels neglected, husband, you're only doing your own self-damage. You're neglecting yourself. That's the point that Paul makes. And it doesn't matter how sharp you are, how healthy your mind is, if you could do whatever crossword puzzle, but you can't convince your doctor that you're healthy if your body is in shambles. But the health of the body and the health of the mind and the head are related similarly in marriage. The head the husband's health and the body, the wife's health, are interrelated, correlated, and inextricably connected. The two of you are one flesh. One flesh. Look at verse 31 again. This is a quote from Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So husbands, are you caring for your wives like she is your own flesh? Like she's as much a part of you as you are. Focused on her spiritual health. Focused on her, not just yourself. What's even more amazing than all of this is the nature of Christ's union with us. And what we see here in verse 32 is that this mystery is profound, and he's saying it refers to Christ and the church. So there's another union here that we are to look at and reflect in our relationships with our wives' husband. It is the union of us and our Lord. 
Christ and his church. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's profound. Jesus said in John 15.4, Abide in me and I in you. John 17, I'll read these words again, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be what? In us. That they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. We are inextricably connected to our Lord. If you are a believer in Christ, you are one with Christ. And that union is profound. It is a mystery even. You know, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about if you commit sexual immorality, you join your body with a prostitute. And in that same process, you're joining the temple of the Holy Spirit to that prostitute. And that doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? It is an incredible union that we have. It is a mystery, but it is our reality. And so this reality of union with Christ should cause us not to sin. This reality should cause us to love others, to obey his commands, to walk like Christ. Similarly, husbands, your union with your wife should cause you to not sin against her, to not neglect her, to not abuse her, but to love her for your own sake and for your walk with Christ. It is profound. It is a high standard to love your wife like Christ loved the church. But husbands, this is our calling. Put her before you and love her sacrificially. Look at the summary here in verse 33 as we close. The two roles, the spirit-filled home, order in the home, this is what it looks like. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, husbands, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You want to have a godly home? A Christ-centered home? A home that reaps joy? A home that reaps blessedness? These are your roles. Do your job as unto the Lord and for his glory. Let me close in prayer. Lord, it is profound what you are saying here. There's so much to unpack. Just the realities of your love for the church, the realities of our union with you. And we look at those two things. We look at Christ, your love for the church. We look at our union with you, inextricably connected to you. God, and that is to be our picture, the image and view for us as husbands to love our wives in the same way to love our wives sacrificially like Christ loved the church, to love our wives as much as we love ourselves, as we are one with them. Help us to be godly husbands. Help us to apply your word in a way that honors and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.